electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, new warnings about virus variants. It kind of snuck up pretty quickly on us. And you're starting to hear more and more cases where vaccinated people have tested positive. From the Olympics to the NFL to your office, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA chief. I think we're vastly undermeasuring how much infection is already underway in the U.S. and where we are in this epidemic wave. Twitter's business bounces back in 2021 and tries to meet the moment. CFO Ned Siegel. We work so hard to make sure that Twitter can be a trusted source of information around COVID. Those stories plus China education stocks taking a hit. You're really seeing the Chinese government crack down on so many components of the technology industry in China. And seltzer may be oversaturated. What was the white fang, white cloth? That was the one Joe was obsessed with. It's Friday, July 23rd, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. It's Friday. Finally got here. We thought it was yesterday. It's actually today. Uh, so happy Friday, everybody. A new warning from the CDC director. Uh, She said that the COVID Delta variant is now one of the most infectious respiratory diseases ever seen by scientists. The variant is highly contagious because people infected with the strain can carry up to 1,000 times more virus in their nasal passages than those infected with the original strain. Now, the Delta variant accounts for more than 83 percent of all sequenced cases in the United States right now. It's up from 50 percent the week of July 3rd. The seven-day average of new cases is up about 53% from last week, and hospitalizations are up 32%. Three states with low vaccination rates, Florida, Texas, and Missouri, accounted for 40% of all new cases nationwide. And lots of questions about even the breakthrough cases, being vaccinated, unvaccinated, whether people who are vaccinated are carrying it and then spreading it to other people. Yeah, and and I think the viral load, as you mentioned, a thousand times more powerful. It also comes early before somebody may even have some of the warning signs, symptoms. Even if you're not going to get really sick, even before you have the symptoms of a cold, you could be carrying around that viral load. And that's what's so concerning. That's uh, because of the breakthrough on these points. And as we talked about yesterday, I think it may have been off the air. In a situation like that, the regular mask won't really protect you. You need to be wearing an N95 mask to get the protection on that. And there are very few people who are wearing those these days. And now, right, by the way. We stopped. I don't know about you. We stopped ordering a lot of new masks. We still yeah. have masks. We have, we masks have left kids. I've been too. wearing the kids masks occasionally when I go <laughs> into places. But now I think we're going to have to rethink a lot of this. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I, we, we've spoken with Scott Gottlieb, who told us that he thinks this will peak hopefully right. in August or early September. Um, but it kind of snuck up pretty quickly on us. And, and you're starting to hear more and more cases 
where vaccinated people have tested positive, whether that be in the Olympics, um, whether that be the front page of the, of, the Wall, of the New York Times today just points out people who think that they're safe, they're right. vaccinated and they're at the, a wedding, 15 cases coming through. Right. You're just starting to see it pop up in more and more places. Well, so we, and we're going to talk about the, the situation of breakthrough cases. But what's so interesting about this idea of a thousand, you know, a thousand times having more of it in your system, even when you are vaccinated, yeah. because a thousand times more of it's in your system, it takes a moment before the actual vaccine effectively kicks in. Now, it is kicking in, so those people who are vaccinated, for the most part, are not ending up in the ICU. No, but the question is, can you transmit but it to others? They, but can they transmit the it to others? And, and I think that question is still unresolved. Like, and look, we have kids who aren't vaccinated. Right. You have people who are with immune-compromised systems. Right. Um, and that's what's going to raise lots of questions yeah. for employers around the country, though, um, in terms of what to do. Next, we're going to talk about what the NFL, by the way, is going to be doing about all of it in just a moment. Uh, and it's an interesting one uh, to try to incentivize those players to get vaccinated. But meantime, a panel of health experts advising the CDC uh, expressing preliminary support for giving COVID booster shots to people who have compromised immune systems. This goes to the, uh, to, to the issue that Becky was just mentioning. The panel said it can't make a formal recommendation until the vaccines get full FDA approval or health regulators amend the emergency use authorization. This is such a kick the can down the road yep. or let somebody else deal with this problem. I mean, right. this was like a duck and cover. There's got to be some situation. Now, the FDA is reviewing um, the emergency use authorization being changed down to a regular authorization. Right. They've got the data from Pfizer, at least. Um, but this is kind of a sticky thing where they say, eh, not my problem. You guys have to figure it out first. Because it also then gets to the, the sort of other more uh, either moral or philosophical question, which is if you're going to get into the booster business, what are you going to do about all those who are unvaccinated yeah. right around the world? And so I think that they're they're in this terrible conundrum. There may be some pressure to try and figure things out quickly. The NFL is out with a warning as well. It says that it's going to hold teams accountable if covid outbreaks occur because of unvaccinated players. In a memo, the league informed team executives and head coaches that it does not plan to reschedule games like it did during the 2020 season outbreaks. Instead, a team with an outbreak among unvaccinated players could be forced to forfeit, take a loss on its record and pay the opposing team's expenses. The NFL Players Association sent a memo of its own urging players to get vaccinated and reminding them that if games are missed, nobody gets paid. At least one NFL player speaking out about those rules in a tweet that has since been deleted, Arizona Cardinals receiver DeAndre Hopkins said, never thought I would say this, but being put in a position to hurt my team because I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. Dallas Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott said he got the vaccine but doesn't believe that decision should be forced on others. He told ESPN he grew up in a family that didn't get vaccines, but he said he wanted to put himself in the best situation to be out there for his team week in and week out. See, now, now you put some money incentive into it and it gets pretty interesting pretty quickly. Um, they, now, it's going to get more complicated, I think, down the line, especially if you get to a point where you have vaccinated players who are getting breakthrough infections. Are getting breakthrough infections. Right. Now, the NFL said in those cases that there would be dispensation for those teams. So they were actually going to try. Do you to, have to have 100% of your roster in that situation, I don't know. or is it 90% of your roster? I don't know. They, they, they said roster? they were going to try to. For, if there were if there were teams that were vaccinated, who who ran into these types of problems, that they were going to work with them. Okay. But so, that if that makes sense. If they were teams that had, and I don't know what's the percentage of unvaccinated players that they won't work with you, right. and nobody's going to get paid. Right. So, um, we'll we'll see whether not just teams, but I wonder whether employers 
do this too. Well, I, I do think it's key to what the CDC was saying. While this is still an emergency use authorization vaccine, a right. vaccination program, I think it's a little tougher for employers right. to make some of these situations, although you've seen it in hospitals and other places where they say, okay, because we're on the front right. lines, okay. this so has to this, happen. And we'll talk to Dr. Scott Golly about this a little bit later, but this got, this, what the NFL is doing got me thinking, what happens if an employer said, you know what, you can't use a sick day if you get COVID, if you're unvaccinated. I mean, sorry, if you're vaccinated. If you're unvaccinated, you can't use a sick day. If, you, if, you're, if you're vaccinated and you Well, that's a bad idea because if the employer said if you're unvaccinated and you get sick and you can't use a sick right, day, guess who's showing up for work? Bingo. So, but this becomes, <laughs> bad idea. This becomes, but, I think the unintended consequences. But there are things that people things. may start to do. I know we're going to get tweets uh, yeah. about all this. We are watching uh, a move lower in Chinese stocks. We mentioned it earlier, but you've got to keep your eyes on what's happening here because Chinese media are reporting a crackdown on education technology by the Chinese government. They would ban foreign capital from buying stakes in Chinese tutoring institutions and ban such institutions from, from public listings. Now, you may say to yourself, what is the connection here? Yeah, I'm still saying that. It, I, I know, I know. The ed tech market in China has been a very hot play in recent years with $10 billion in venture capital money pouring into the sector in the last year alone. And Alibaba, Tencent, and ByteDance are among the companies that have entered that sector. Uh, here in the States, we are seeing uh, pressure on names in the education sector as well I mean, uh, across the board. So in theory, what this was mean is because those companies have a stake in education technology, right. you wouldn't allow American investors to buy into them or Bingo, other, other foreign investors. I, I, I just I guess I question how big are their stakes in the education technology. Right. It's not something I thought about with any of those companies. And would they just as a result say, forget it, we're going to spin it off and get rid of that aspect of it? That may be. The other thing, though, that I just wonder, and, and, and look, this is all happening in real time, so we yeah. have lots of questions here, which is you're really seeing the Chinese government crack down Across on so many yeah. components of the technology industry in China right. and what that ultimately means and how that plays out. You know, we saw Didi uh, down materially. Almost, I don't know. 10 percent. I don't know how, how much Didi has a stake in the education world. But, but you're right to say that this is the larger issue. Would, would it be enough for those companies to kind of spin it out? Because for years it has seemed like China has really wanted to promote right. its technology companies and make sure that they are seen as global leaders and allow foreign investors and everything else. Lately, it has seemed like they are much more interested in just maintaining control. Right. But it also goes back to the other issue, which is, you know, the Facebooks and Apples and Googles and everybody has said, look, to the U.S. government, please stay away from us. Don't try to break us up because we need to compete against these big guys over here. That argument becomes more complicated if, if in fact, the Chinese government themselves. is cracking down on these companies. Right. If you're a, a beer fan, Sam Adams, uh, Boston beer shares are tanking. Uh, maybe you're not a fan. Maker of Sam Adams reported earnings of $4.75 per share, nearly $2 short of estimates Revenue of $603 million, missing estimates by $55 million. On the call, executives said that they had high hopes for its truly hard seltzer brand that didn't materialize. The CEO blamed several factors, including a maturing market with less than uh, new trial, uh, with less new trial, a crowded market of new brands in the category, tough comps, compared to the pandemic last year when people stocked their pantries. And <laughs> Just this morning, Goldman Sachs slashing its price target on Boston beer from uh, $1,550 to $875 wow. uh, per share. It also downgraded the stock to neutral from buy. Well, I wonder, I, I wonder if the switch 
from people buying and stocking at home to being back out if that's right. a problem for Boston Beer because maybe that brand doesn't have quite um, the same relationship with bars and other outlets, maybe. restaurants where, where people go out right. and buy these things. Because there's a lot of them. Like the right. High Noon, what's the, the one that... Joe kept talking about last year. There's so many of these seltzer brands. I never. Everybody's doing it. By the way, the, the hard a, seltzer is everywhere. Yeah. Um, I was just. So it's probably going I, to be if if you can get to the right outlets. If you're in the right. places where people are now buying alcohol because they're not necessarily buying it and taking it home as much right. as they were during the pandemic. I don't know. They might have been a little late could on be. the on it the hard be. seltzer yeah. push. What they, was the they, white fang or is it white? Oh white, yes, I know what you're talking about. White cloth. Thank you. Yep. There you go. That was the one Joe was obsessed with. Next on Squawk Pod, a report from the very first moments of the much-delayed Olympics in Tokyo and former FDA head Scott Gottlieb on the safety of these games. I think it's unfortunate to see only about 80% of the U.S. athletes vaccinated, quite frankly, because we had an opportunity to set an example for the world around vaccinations. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe's out today. Today marks the official kickoff of the Olympic Games in Japan. The opening ceremony airing tonight on NBC at 7.30 uh, a.m. Eastern Time. And NBC's uh, Stephanie Gosk joins us right now live from Tokyo. Good morning or good evening. Hey, good morning, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, good evening. Exactly. So tell us, what, what, what are we seeing here this morning? We've got the opening ceremony. It has kicked off. Uh, of course, this was an opening ceremony that was supposed to happen a year ago, and it had to be delayed because of the pandemic. They are calling it the moving forward opening ceremony. And, and really what that is, is the hope of the organizers here that this opening ceremony together with the games will become this symbol of hope of the world coming together and getting beyond the pandemic. But Andrew, we are obviously not beyond the pandemic. We are very much in it, not just uh, in our country, but also here in Japan, the numbers are on the rise here in Tokyo. There's been some resistance towards the Olympics moving forward. But there is also some support for it. And really outside of the stadium tonight is the perfect example 
of that. You had a protest with about 500 protesters, but then you had a whole bunch of people that had gathered around the stadium. They're not allowed inside because of the COVID restrictions, and they're just sitting there waiting to see the fireworks, hoping to hear some of the music, hoping to take in, take in this feeling of pride that their country is actually kicking off these games. And, and it will launch what is a very unusual Olympics, lots of restrictions. Athletes that have gone from being prepared for an Olympics last year to suddenly being put on ice and having to retrain and get ready for this one. And the opening ceremony really kicked off with a nod towards the efforts that they've had to go through to get ready for these games. Andrew. Okay, Stephanie, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, Hoping and looking forward to talking to you a lot more over the next two weeks to uh, get a a view from the ground of of what's happening there. And we appreciate it. We're going to be joined right now. Uh, to talk a little bit more about the impact of COVID on the games by Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina. Uh, Good morning to you, uh, doctor. We're we're watching the Olympics uh, open up. um, And I think there's questions, of course, and concerns about what this means, not just for the games, but but I think in a more broader context around what happens post games, especially as we're seeing uh, the Delta variant on the increase. Right. Well, look, I think it's certainly possible to use testing and the procedures they have in place to keep the game safe. Um, They're going to turn over cases. We're seeing them do that. But that's an indication of the system working, not failing. Hopefully they're identifying the cases before they prevent, before they become outbreaks inside the Olympic Village. They can create a bubble around these events, certainly not on par with what the NBA did. They're not going to be able to deploy testing in that way. Um, but achieve a measure of safety around these events. I think it's unfortunate to see only about 80% of the U.S. athletes vaccinated, quite frankly, because we had an opportunity to set an example for the world around vaccination. Certainly our, our athletes had more access to vaccine than many other athletes around the world. And we, that fact that we couldn't achieve a higher rate of vaccination to not only protect our athletes, protect people around the venues, but also set an example, I think, is, is unfortunate. But I think these games can come off, come off safely. I know that they're stepping up the amount of testing they're doing. Uh, and they can use testing and procedures in terms of how they move the athletes around to try to control the risk of outbreaks in that setting. Can you uh, weigh in on what we're hearing from the NFL overnight um, about their plans effectively to try to incentivize or de-incentivize people who don't take the vaccine and to get the entire uh, teams, the clubs, to, to all be vaccinated? Effectively, they're saying, look, if you're not vaccinated and something happens and you have to forfeit, it's going to cost you and it's going to cost you money. Yeah, well, it certainly looks like a way to mandate vaccination without mandating vaccination. I think as we head into the into the fall and the winter, hopefully the vaccines achieve full approval. I think you're going to see more businesses um, do this. I think you're going to see more mandates get put in place. Certainly in the healthcare setting, you're starting to see that become more commonplace. Business wants to restart. People want to restart activities. And to the extent that the vaccines are going to provide an added measure to be able to do that safely and protect venues where you're bringing people together, I think you're going to see um, more sports teams, more business um, venues start to mandate vaccination. Um, Doctor, you're, of course, on the board of Pfizer, um, one of the, uh, the, the, the original creators of this, this vaccine. Uh, study in Israel effectively suggests uh, that they drop in uh, vaccine protection. And uh, there seems to be a major debate uh, about that. Where do you stand? Well, look, it's consistent with what we've been seeing um, over a prolonged period of time right now, which there seems to be a decline in efficacy, particularly around an older population vaccinated a while ago. And that's that's what's um, renewed this debate around providing boosters, particularly to the to the frail elderly people in nursing homes, for example. 
and there has been some reported data that doesn't look that discouraging. It shows pretty good vaccine effectiveness overall against symptomatic disease, but a decline in effectiveness against any infection. But then there's been some leaks on top of that, some unsubstantiated leaks right now from the Israeli data set showing declining effectiveness against severe disease in the cohort that was vaccinated in January. So what the reports say, um, and these are unconfirmed reports, is that there's about 80% effectiveness against uh, symptomatic and severe disease in the cohort that was vaccinated in January. But when you age stratify it, you see a sharper decline among an older population. So remember, in Israel, they vaccinated in January their healthcare workers and their frail elderly. And so in the older population, you see a more pronounced decline. That wouldn't be that inconsistent with some of the other data sets that we've seen, as well as how we understand immunity, that in an older population um, with a weaker immune system, you might not have the same durability of response. Remember, when we started talking about these vaccines, initially we talked about the possibility there may need to be boosters provided at around this point in time. We talked about the possibility that this may become an annual um, injection, and there may be a cohort of the population that does, in fact, need to be boosted. I think we ought to be looking more closely at this in the U.S., particularly around the nursing homes, because remember, we vaccinated the residents, the 1.34 million residents of U.S. nursing homes back in December. So they are now entering into the 2021-2022 the COVID season, this Delta wave, with a vaccine now that's quite old. And so we should be looking very seriously about what the durability of protection is in that population and whether or not they need uh, a booster. We're, we're a little bit behind the ball on that, I think, here in the U.S. And I think at least directionally, this data is probably correct, whether or not the magnitude or the effect that the Israelis are reporting is, in fact, what's happening here in the U.S. and other countries. It's unclear. Hey, Scott, I, I saw the, the forecast from the CDC yesterday that said as of the week of August 14th, they anticipate for that, for that week we'll have anywhere from 92,000 cases of COVID to 803 cases of COVID. That makes me feel like the CDC doesn't have any idea where we're headed or, or what's happening here. Have we lost track of this? I think they're having a very hard time modeling this, and they don't know where we are in, the, um, in this wave of infection. And I think it also reflects the fact that we're having a difficult time uh, doing ascertainment, figuring out how much infection, in fact, is underway. And I think we're vastly undermeasuring how much infection is already underway in the U.S. and where we are in this, in this epidemic wave. I think we're probably further into it than we're measuring right now. I think they're also having a hard time measuring what the uh, components of immunity are and how durable the immunity is. And that's why you're seeing a very wide variance in, in the estimates. And anywhere from, you know, the, the going into the final week of August 14th, 14th, they're measuring anywhere from 10,000 infections a day to 100,000 infections a day. That's a pretty wide range. Doctor, um, I want to go back, though, to this idea of the booster shot. Uh, why do you think the CDC thus far has been as resistant as it appears that they are uh, to the suggestion that a booster could even be necessary. I mean, you're, you're, you're getting even the sort of ideas uh, promulgated that, that Pfizer is pushing this because they, they, they want to uh, do this for profit as opposed to appears what you're saying and maybe some of these studies are saying that, that they actually may be needed. Well, look, if, if in fact we require boosters in the U.S., it'd be among an older population by and large. Anyone who's vaccinated now wouldn't need a booster. Anyone who's vaccinated during the summer who's younger, healthier, wouldn't need a booster going into the fall. So we're probably talking about 30 or 40 million um, injections out of 4 billion vaccines that are going to be delivered by Pfizer next year. So, you know, this is not a big component of what Pfizer is going to be delivering to the world. So I, I, I sort of reject the notion that this is somehow you know, an effort to try to get more vaccine out there. Um, I think, you know, we have a legitimate public health concerns. We don't want to see people who are vulnerable put at risk unnecessarily. But then why is the CDC as resistant to, to, to even having this conversation in public? 
there, from what I'm hearing privately, the CDC um, doesn't put, it believes there's some methodological problems with the Israeli data. Um, others don't feel that way, but they feel that they're oversampling the vaccinated population, so they're getting a skewed perspective on what, on what the protection is in that population by oversampling the, the vaccinated population, over-testing them, under-sampling the general population. And the CDC also isn't seeing it in their own data set, but their data set is just hospitalized people. So they're only looking at people who are vaccinated and become hospitalized. So they're not seeing a decline in efficacy in the general population. And that's what the Israelis are picking up. The UK also isn't seeing this in their data set. But remember, the UK spaced apart their vaccines more. And so it could be that by spacing apart the vaccinations by a couple of months, you get a more durable response versus the schedule that the Israelis and the U.S. filed, where we tried to get the vaccines into the population as quickly as possible because it was the setting of a raging epidemic and we were trying to get as much immunity into the population as quickly as possible. So going forward, it could be the case that after a third boost, you get a much more durable response. Going forward, if we're not in the setting of a pandemic, we may space these inoculations apart more, and that may give a more durable response. We're learning as we go, but the bottom line is we're seeing declining efficacy in the older population. We need to make sure they're protected because they're also the most vulnerable. Doctor, final question, and, and it relates to the ability to spread if you're vaccinated. We're seeing reports of breakthrough cases. As you know, uh, Los Angeles, there was a number yesterday that 20 percent of the cases were breakthrough cases. And uh, one of the questions that now being asked, especially for those who have uh, children who are unvaccinated or around people who are otherwise unvaccinated, is whether uh, those, uh, those folks can actually be spreaders. We don't know the answer to this question. Um, we, you know, we know that the vaccine sharply reduced the risk of transmission with the old strain. It's quite possible that with these new, more contagious variants, where you have much higher viral titers earlier in the course of infection, even if you develop an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection after vaccination, you could be shedding more virus. And so you know, my advice to people who are vaccinated would be if you become you know, if you think that you could be symptomatic with a mild case of COVID, even, even in the setting of being vaccinated and you're around vulnerable people, take appro- appropriate measures. If you're around a newborn baby, if you're around an elderly person, particularly someone who's not vaccinated, someone who was vaccinated a while ago, I think we need to be mindful in the setting of, a, of now a very big wave of infection in areas where you're, it's high prevalence. Look, if you're in Connecticut, if you're in an area of Vermont where there's very low prevalence, your behavior can be different than if you're in Missouri, Texas, or Florida, where 40% of the infections are occurring in the United States right now. Those are areas where there's such a high prevalence, there's a high risk that anyone could be a carrier of this infection. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you, as always, and uh, we uh, hope you have a great weekend. I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up, Twitter's fastest ever revenue growth. The company's CFO, Ned Siegel, joins us. When people want to find out what's happening in the world and what people are talking about, when advertisers want to connect with their customers, Twitter's becoming a better and better place for them to do that. On another beautiful morning in New York. We are on the NASDAQ Terrace. We're going to call it. Can we call it the Squawk Terrace just for now? I think we should. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Stand Becky by. You're listening to Squawk Pod, and here's Becky Quick. Ten stories above the Nasdaq in Times Square on what we're calling the Squawk Terrace. In three, two, one, cue please. Shares of Twitter, as you know, on the rise this morning after that big beat for the company for their second quarter results last night. The social media giant posting its fastest revenue growth in seven years. Twitter citing a broad increase in advertiser demand. Joining us right now, first on CNBC, is Twitter CFO Ned Siegel. And, Ned, this is good because it gives us some time to talk through what happened and, and what you see happening in the current quarter right now. But I have to say there was a headline I read this morning that said, Twitter is having an inexplicably awesome 2021. You're here. Explain it to us. What happened? We grew our audience by 20 million people year over year, 7 million from last quarter. We're delivering better ad formats, more relevance through age-based targeting, location-based targeting for advertisers, all of this against a really strong macroeconomic backdrop. There are more events happening. People are able to go back to those events in many situations. Advertisers have more products that they're launching where they want to connect with their customers on Twitter. It's all coming together to give us a ton of momentum right now. So I think that's probably the big question. Obviously, it's a great economic background. We saw very strong numbers from Snap last night, too. But how much of this is just a strong economic background? How much of it is these new ways of advertising that you're uh, showing up on the site, new ways of doing it? Because that's the stuff that will continue. And I think that's what investors are really trying to figure out. How do you break that down? Well, we're benefiting both from the macroeconomic environment but also our own strategy and execution. If we weren't delivering ad formats where you could swipe between images and go to different destinations on an advertiser's website, if we weren't piloting a format for game advertisers so that you can actually play a game inside of an ad and then download the app if you like it, if we weren't delivering better age-based and location-based targeting, the macro, drop, uh, the macro backdrop wouldn't really make as much of a difference as it does. The audience is so important as well. We're making it easier and easier for people to find what they're looking for, and it's making a big difference. So what, what happens? Do advertisers pay more for that more targeted and, and more directed spot, or more advertisers flocking up, or is there just more landscape that can be bought up? It's really all of those, Becky, both that there is more landscape because we're doing a better job growing the audience because we're giving more relevant ads. Advertisers are willing to pay more for that slot. And because we're growing the pie, there's a lot of shift towards digital ads uh, from TV and other places where advertisers were showing up before. What do the Olympics mean for you? Because we've talked so much about the Olympics this time, how it may not be great for Japan, how there are a lot of questions about it. Um, some advertisers in Japan aren't bothering to show up, but most of the advertisers in the United States here are. What, what does this mean, this event, as an opportunity for Twitter? Well, the Olympics are a great audience and a great advertiser opportunity for us. People come to Twitter when they can't be in the stands to see the roar of the crowd. They come to see the highlights right after they happen. We'll have all of the medal moments on Twitter. They'll also will be pre-roll, so advertisements right before those highlights from advertisers all around the world who've been waiting for this global moment to connect with their customers all around the world. We've been preparing for over two years for these Olympics, and we're really excited to be able to deliver both for audience and for advertisers. So Jack Dorsey was talking last night, and I have to say he has these big thoughts. I don't always follow what he's talking about. I was looking forward to talking to you, so maybe you can explain it to me in a way that I get. Um, stuff on AI, stuff on Bitcoin. If the internet has a native currency, a global currency, uh, we are able to move so much faster with products such as Superfollows, commerce, um, subscription, tip jar, uh, and we can reach every single person on the planet because of that, instead of going down a market-by-market-by-market market market approach. 
Um, I think this is a big part of our future. How does this all play out? What's the big grand theory and how does this play out into what the street is looking for? And okay, explain this to me on the bottom line. What does this really mean in the numbers? Well, we're leveraging machine learning and AI across the company to deliver better outcomes. That means making sure we're showing the right ads to people. It means making sure that we're sending the right notification to you to bring you back to Twitter in a moment when you really care about. That's a really important part of our work. It also means from a health perspective, now 60% of the tweets that we action, we're finding through machine learning as opposed to through a human needing to be involved at the very outset. Jack also talked about Bitcoin last night. If you step back and think about decentralization broadly, tweets, we want them to be bits that can be organized in different ways across the internet. You see them on a million websites, not just on Twitter. We want to hire people all around the world, not just tied to where our offices are. And we also want to help people find their customers on Twitter, whether they're selling something or they're doing a premium subscription called Super Follows to their best tweets. And having a decentralized currency will help us do that across borders. And so that's a little bit of what Jack was Why talking can't about you just last do night. Do that with like a credit card or with Apple Pay or with PayPal or something? Because if you start using Bitcoin as a currency, it's pretty volatile. If you start using that for things that you're going to buy on a regular basis. I'm just not sure that it's to the point where you can do that for everyday transactions all the time. Well, there's a good amount of friction when you want to transact across borders. Mm -hmm. Taxes, currency, different systems that work in one place or another. And so what Jack was talking about last night is the opportunity to use a decentralized currency to overcome some of those challenges. A lot of this stuff is in front of us. Right now, you can't buy something on Twitter. But in the coming quarters, you'll see business profiles where there'll be a buy button where you can click through and transact you'll be able to subscribe to Becky's best tweets. You've grown, you've grown your followers on Twitter, but now you'll be able to ha have them subscribe and pay more or pay in order to see your premium content. I'm not sure anybody's going to pay to see my tweets, but I get what you're talking about. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's happening just in terms of pushback from Washington and maybe regulation and trying to make sure they're policing what's being said on Twitter. Um, we heard President Biden kind of crack down on Facebook, say that they were killing people before he walked it back with misinformation. And then last night, Senator Amy Klobuchar put forth a bill that would really strip liability protections from companies like a Twitter, like a Facebook, if they think that there's been a violation and misinformation that's been spread when it comes to health concerns that are out there. What do you say to something like that? We work so hard to make sure that Twitter can be a trusted source of information around COVID. We've had over 200 million people come to our COVID resources about 3 billion times. That means they're coming on average 15 times each. That means that they're finding trusted information and they keep coming back to learn more. We've removed over 11,000 accounts for uh, uh, violating our policies around COVID. And we've removed over 40,000 pieces of information around COVID. We have to keep being vigilant about this work to make sure that Twitter can be a trusted source of information. So I think we're closely aligned with the folks who are uh, really watching this closely with but us. But if this bill went through, would it be a problem? Because you're always going to have somebody who's able to post something, even if it's something you eventually take down, who posts something that says, OK, here's this quack theory that's completely untrue. I'll have to look more closely at the bill, but when we step back from any one piece of legislation, when we think globally about the challenge of getting people the facts around COVID, around vaccines, around anything else, uh, it's so important that we move as quickly as we can to remove the information so that people can come to Twitter and continue to trust what they find when they come there.
I know you all addressed the issue partially last night just in terms of Apple and the new privacy restrictions they have in their new operating system, whether that's going to be a problem. I know it hasn't seemed to be much of a problem for you all yet, but what about the longer-term ramifications? Will it be something that affects how you can advertise and how much money you can raise through advertising? This is an incredibly dynamic time in the advertising industry. Every couple of years something happens, whether it's GDPR in, in Europe or CCPA in California, and now IDFA on Apple devices. So this alphabet soup is going to continue, I think, for many years to come. And it's our job to adapt and continue to build trust with the people who use Twitter. If we build trust with them, they're more likely to give us access to more signal so we can show them relevant tweets and relevant ads. So far, we're really pleased with how that's gone for us. But I think this dynamic industry is going to continue to evolve. Advertisers have to decide what platforms they want to advertise on how they want to show up with brand ads versus DR ads. We're more brand than we are DR today, and we have pretty unique signal relative to others, and we feel like so far that's positioned us really well with these changes. In terms of things opening up, would it be a problem for you all if the Delta variant turns out to be a problem and the economies in some parts of the world shut down a bit? Well, there are lots of puts and takes to consider around COVID. We saw our audience grow massively last year when everybody around the world went into shelter in place. Advertisers, in many ways, paused and had to decide how they wanted to show up. So I'm not sure how this will play out, given different countries around the world are coming out and going back into shelter in place at different times. But what we can tell is when people want to find out what's happening in the world and what people are talking about, whether they can go to the game or they have to watch from home, when advertisers have products that they want to launch and they want to connect with their customers, Twitter's becoming a better and better place for them to do that. Ned, it's really uh, great having you here and having you here in person. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Becky. Thank you. That does it for us today. We will see you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. And that's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tell us what you think. We're on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. You can rate Squawk Pod or write a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.